Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the international affairs, foreign policy, and global development community, and world news aficionados of all stripes. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. On April 14th, President Biden announced that U.S. troops will be leaving Afghanistan by September 11th, 2021, the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks that drew the U.S. into Afghanistan in the first place. The decision did not come as a surprise. Biden has long been a skeptic of a large U.S. military footprint in the country. Still, this is a significant inflection point in both U.S. foreign policy and for the future of Afghanistan. On the line with me to discuss the implications of the decision to end U.S. military presence in Afghanistan after 20 years is Adam Weinstein. He is a research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and a military veteran who served in Afghanistan. We kick off with an extended conversation about the diplomatic context the Biden administration inherited when it took office in January. We then discuss how key players like the Afghan government, NATO allies, and of course the Taliban have reacted to this announcement. Finally, we discuss what the future might hold for Afghanistan without the U.S. security guarantee. So this month marks the eighth anniversary of this podcast. Global Dispatches is the longest-running independent international affairs show Many podcasts have come and gone in that time, but we are still here. Uh, The format has changed a bit, but what has remained is our focus on issues and regions and topics that are too often overlooked by other media outlets. And I bring this up now because as the U.S. footprint in Afghanistan gets lighter and lighter, the country will likely fade even further from the headlines. But my pledge to you is that this show will consistently return to Afghanistan, hopefully for many years into the future, as long as we can sustain this independent media enterprise. This is all to say, as the situation evolves in Afghanistan, expect many more episodes over the coming months and years. For now, here is my conversation with Adam Weinstein of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, President Biden announced that the remainder of U.S. troops would depart Afghanistan by uh, September 11th, 2021 at the latest. And I believe the intention is to begin that process within a couple of weeks 
And he also announced that the United States uh, would, would continue to maintain an embassy and whatever number of troops is associated with that and continue to support the Afghan government. But the U.S. war in Afghanistan is over. At least the U.S. military's role in the Afghan conflict is over. And what do we know about how Biden arrived at this decision? I mean, you know, for the last 20 years, every president has sort of undergone some kind of review of Afghan policy. Uh, We know from reporting that previously in the Obama administration, Biden was supportive of a smaller U.S. footprint in Afghanistan, a position that was ultimately overruled by, you know, his then boss, Obama. How did Biden finally seem to come to this decision? Well, I think President Biden has always been a natural skeptic of the war in Afghanistan, at least the U.S. role in it. And he was a critic of the surge. I I served in Afghanistan as a U.S. Marine in the tail end of the surge in 2012. And of course, it's known that President Biden uh, rejected the idea that we should send upwards of 100,000 U.S. troops to Afghanistan because he felt that the mission should be limited to counterterrorism and and not be this broad counterinsurgency and to some extent a nation building mission. He was overruled by President Obama. When he came into office, uh, he inherited the U.S.-Taliban agreement and and intra-Afghan negotiations that were ongoing. And, um, you know, that agreement was negotiated by the Trump administration and uh, there were positives and negatives to it. The Trump administration was willing to talk directly with the Taliban, which in and of itself was a a concession because it excluded the Afghan government, um, which was a condition of the Taliban to talking. And the Trump administration and the Taliban made an agreement with one another, but there were some problems with that agreement. One is that the the requirements of the agreement on the U.S. side are are easily verifiable. I mean, reducing troops, et cetera, making efforts to get the Taliban off of the UN sanctions list. And they're very concrete. Whereas uh, some of the conditions on the Taliban are a little bit more um, subjective. You know, what does it mean to uh, not allow uh, groups like Al-Qaeda to, to, to threaten the United States and its allies from Afghan soil? Does that mean completely cutting off Al-Qaeda? What exactly does it mean? The, these things were a little bit in gray areas. Um, Another problem was with the agreement was that it didn't have precise terms. So, for example, it calls on the release of up to 5,000 Taliban prisoners, which the Taliban um, interpreted as no less than 5,000 Taliban prisoners. And that takes us to another um, weakness of the agreement, which is that the agreement um, requires the cooperation or required the cooperation of the Afghan government even though the Afghan government was not a party to the agreement. Um, And so this caused delays in the agreement's implementation. There were delays in releasing prisoners and um, there were delays due to conflicting results in the Afghan election or contested results rather. So uh, some of your listeners may remember that uh, President Ashraf Ghani and Abdullah Abdullah um, held competing inaugurations. And uh, the Trump administration threatened to hold one, withhold $1 billion in aid um, to try to push them towards a, a compromise. And so intra-Afghan negotiations began six months later than they were supposed to. Um, I believe they were supposed to begin in March of, 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 and of 2020, and instead they began in September. And so 
by the time, uh, you know, the Biden administration came into office, intra-Afghan negotiations were in bad shape. Now, of course, it wasn't just due to the, you know, some, some perhaps, uh, I don't want to say sloppy aspects of the agreement, because it, it might be the case that it would have been difficult to get a better yeah. agreement. But ambiguity but, is helpful in these situations. It's easier to sign yeah. agreement if there's ambiguous uh, understanding of what it actually means. Yeah, I think that's a key point. You, yeah. It's easier to get to a signed agreement that's ambiguous, but it's harder to enforce it. Mm-hmm. And that was the problem. And then the Taliban engaged in incredibly high rates of, of violence uh, against the Afghan government and civilians throughout 2020. Mm-hmm. Now, notably, they did not kill a, a single uh, U.S. service member or NATO service member during that one year uh, for you know one year out from that agreement. So that was that was a huge um, accomplishment from the U.S. perspective. So the Biden administration comes into office with this agreement that's in kind of bad shape. These negotiations that are fledgling, and they decide to do what some have called a, a diplomatic hail mary. They leak peace plans. They there's a, there's a conference that the Russians organize in, in Moscow. The Biden administration tries to organize this um, Afghan peace conference in Turkey, but but things just didn't go well. The the Ghani administration rejected uh, uh, the Biden administration's peace plan, and the Taliban ultimately um, became increasingly intransigent and ultimately refused to attend um, the meeting in Doha. I mean, sorry, the meeting in Turkey before it happened. And so I think at that point, the Biden administration was developing this plan B for how they would uh, pull out of Afghanistan. And when they saw that this sort of Hail Mary diplomatic effort to get a negotiated settlement wasn't working, they decided, well, we tried, but now we're going to cut our losses and, and leave. So that's very helpful context, I think, for understanding and setting up this decision to pull all U.S. troops by September 11th this coming year. What do we know about how U.S. allies in NATO have responded to this announcement? It, you know, at the end of the day, once once President Biden made the decision, I think NATO had to to fall in line. Um, I mean, they're not going to stay without the United States. But in the in the months and weeks up to the decision, there were some there were some individuals in NATO and and the EU that expressed um, a desire to remain in Afghanistan. And um, but I think the biggest issue for the NATO countries was that they needed a timeline. They needed they needed notice if we were going to leave because they have their own domestic processes and and administrative processes they have to go through and they have uh you know they need their own time to safely withdraw their troops one one of the issues with all united all american foreign policy is that we forget that other countries have domestic politics other countries have processes and other countries have timelines and that's true for our, our foes and that's true for our partners so i think you know, there's certainly some some in the in the NATO community that wanted to stay in Afghanistan, but the biggest issue for them was uh, with being provided notice, and and, mm. and that's where I think you get the September deadline. That's that interesting because you know the September 11th deadline is in fact a violation of the U.S. Taliban agreement, which stipulates that U.S. forces need to leave by May 1st. But you're saying that chances are that deadline was a way to 
um, you know, give allies the heads up they needed to, you know, go through their own domestic processes to withdraw their troops. Um, what do we know about how the Taliban so far have reacted to this news? Like, again, you know, the U.S. is violating the terms of that agreement. The Taliban have uh, been uh, uh, intransigent. And actually, I would, I would, you know, some of your listeners might follow Twitter and I would point them to a thread that I think Andrew Watkins of International Crisis Group posted today, which, um, sort of collected some of the different uh, reactions. The Taliban have rejected U.S. troops staying past the May 1 deadline, and they've rejected any negotiations until all foreign troops leave. Now, if, if you look at it from the Taliban perspective, I think it would be a bit crazy for them to say, okay, we accept your, your September deadline when we've just uh, passed the May deadline. Again, the Taliban have leverage too. The Taliban, uh, you know, have a have a rank and file that they're accountable to. So I don't see why the Taliban would agree, officially agree to this uh, deadline extension. That being said, it's very possible that if the Taliban see observable progress towards a withdrawal and they see that the United States and, and NATO partners are actively leaving Afghanistan, it doesn't quite make sense for them to begin to militarily engage with them. Um, why? Why would they risk drawing the United States back into the conflict on their way out? You know, why would they shoot them in the back on their way out? That being said, it is an ideologically driven organization. So I'll never say never with the Taliban. They, they're, they're, they're a rational actor to an extent, but they routinely engage in, in behavior that I don't personally find rational. Um, but, you know, on balance, I think the most important thing for the Biden administration will be to show verifiable progress towards leaving and leave sooner rather than later if they want to avoid uh, being targeted by the Taliban. So we're speaking on Thursday, uh, April 15th. Uh, yesterday was the day that uh, Biden made this announcement. And uh, Secretary of State Blinken is currently in Afghanistan uh, for meetings with Ashraf Ghani. Uh, what do we know about the... Um, how the Afghan government so far is responding and reacting to this news and what their sort of next steps might be. The Afghan government and their military was sounding the alarm bells prior to president Biden's decision. And they were saying, you know, if the U S leaves, there will be a civil war. And um, they were in some cases trying to equate the Taliban with ISIS. And I think they were trying quite hard to prevent a U.S. withdrawal. But now that it's happening, I think they're, they're, they're trying to transition to a message of strength and unity and the future of Afghanistan doesn't begin and end with the U.S. intervention. I think uh, Ashraf Ghani is in trouble politically. I think some of his, uh, his inner circle will begin to abandon him since he was not able to achieve a, a political settlement nor convince the United States to stay. So I think he's a bit isolated. There, there are other folks who are who have more expertise on the domestic politics of Afghanistan, but that's my, my general reading of the situation. So, I mean, it's fair to say that, you know, the Afghan government is very weak at this point, as you just described, the Taliban controls a large swath of the country does not appear terribly weak at the moment. The U S military is withdrawing from Afghanistan and that has been propping up the Afghan government. So what, what is to say that the Taliban won't just sort of sweep 
in and overtake the Afghan government in the areas that the Afghan government currently controls, but the Taliban does not. Well, you know, if you if you look back to 2014, when there was a bit of a drawdown, um, although combat operations never ended, um, the Taliban did hold Kunduz for two weeks um, and they they uh, were it required the United States uh, to military to help the uh, Afghan security forces retake that city. I think we might see the same thing again, where the the Taliban attempt to take provincial capitals that they've surrounded in the, over the last year. Um, and I think you will see their territory expand. Um, that being said, you, you, there, there's a concept called in political science and um, <laughs> called resolve. And I, I mean, and it's a common concept as well, the will to fight, the resolve to fight. And it may be the case that once the United States leaves, the Afghan military will have greater resolve to defeat uh, the Taliban, or at least, well, certainly not defeat them outright, but certainly perhaps prevent them from taking territory. And so that's a wild card. If you, a, a cold assessment of the Taliban versus the Afghan security forces, the ones I've read and that have been most persuasive to me. Um, suggests that over time, the Taliban will overrun the Afghan security forces, take provincial capitals, and perhaps eventually take uh, Kabul. Uh, this is going to be measured in months and years, not weeks. Um, but then again, there's always that resolve wild card. And, and perhaps once the the sort of crutch of the United States is removed, um, there will the Afghan government will get their act together and the Afghan security forces, uh, which have improved over the last 20 years, uh, will will make gains on the battlefield. So uh, I, I never say never, but I think it's extremely likely that, that the Taliban will begin to expand its reach. Like, what are the implications of the potential, you know, takeover of Afghanistan, all the provincial capitals, potentially even Kabul by the Taliban? for some of like the hard-won gains uh, that have been made in Afghanistan in terms of human rights, women's rights over the last you know two decades? For a lot of rural Afghans, those gains never really happened because they were in the crossfire of a, of a, counter, a US-led counterinsurgency and a Taliban ins- insurgency, and they didn't really experience those gains. But it will it will be quite dismal for Af- for urban Afghans and especially women and minorities who have increased their rights. I mean, that's something that just that's you, you can't have ro- ro- you know rose colored glasses on when you think about that. I, I think it's something it's a sobering reality that just needs to be um, accepted. But I don't think that if the United States had remained militarily engaged in Afghanistan, that there was ever a, a, a sustainable solution, military solution, because the U.S. itself was a driver of the conflict, among many other drivers. So we were essentially kicking the can down the road. And I think these same concerns would have existed two years from now, four years from now, 10 years from now. Um, it, there's a recent article that was published in New Lines uh, magazine um, uh, by a journalist with the last name Kazizai, uh, who he went to the Sangin Valley, and re- which is has been under the control of the Taliban since 2015, I think, and it was also a notorious hotspot during the war. Um, I mean, I remember hearing Marines talk about the Sangin Valley. I was based in a, a Ruzgan province, but I remember 
the Sangin Valley was an infamous place to, to be sent. Um, and uh, this journalist um, lived there for a little while and, and saw what rule was like under the Taliban. And it, it of course, was very restrictive. So I, I, I think uh, the future of, of civil rights and human rights in Afghanistan looks bleak right now. But I reject a revisionist account of the war in which the United States was a blameless actor or a or the notion that if the United States stayed militarily engaged, uh, this trajectory could be altered. So, I, I mean, based on, on everything that you've said so far, it seems more likely than not that the Taliban will regain control of more and more territory across Afghanistan. What are the regional security implications for for that? The regional implications in terms of uh, refugee flows to Europe um, shouldn't be overblown. I think Pakistan and Iran were, will absorb the majority of the refugee flows. And to the extent that the international community can uh, can call on them to treat those refugees with uh, dignity and also support them in doing so, I, I think that will be important. The Pakistani Taliban, known as the TTP, um, I, I, I think, Will, will, will be emboldened by the victory of the Afghan Taliban and the TTP are already a bit ascendant in Pakistan. Again, you, terrorism inside Pakistan had plummeted compared to the rates that we had seen a decade earlier. And the TTP, um, I think, has made some inroads with uh, some of uh, the, the tribes in, in the, the area formerly known as Fata, but um, that's now technically a part of uh, the province Khyber Pashtunkhwa. And I think that Pakistan will face a terrorism challenge if Afghanistan descends into civil war. So while the, while the Pakistani establishment might be glad to see an ascendant Taliban in Afghanistan and a future Afghanistan that's not closely aligned with India, I think they will be very short-sighted to not realize that an unstable Afghanistan that is in a, involved in a civil war will um, affect their own security. Going forward, I mean, what would an ideal U.S. policy look like uh, for you in terms of like diplomatic engagement with the country, or perhaps even continued, you know, military engagement in the country in some way or another? What might prevent the Taliban from regaining control of the country in a way that might be inimical to U.S. interests? Well, rather than thinking about it in terms of preventing the Taliban from regaining control of the, the country, which is in, is in itself sort of a military framing of the problem, I think we should think about how we can support a, a negotiated settlement between Afghans, which may be unlikely, but is still a goal that's worth pursuing. It's just not worth pursuing using U.S. troops as leverage. So I would... I would want to see the Biden administration use its diplomatic um, and economic leverage with countries in the region, especially Pakistan, um, to try to bring the Taliban back to the negotiating table. Um, there is some leverage that the United States still has in terms of um, granting legitimacy to the Taliban, convincing them that they shouldn't take a path that turns them back into a pariah state. The UN sanctions... Um, removal um, and continued aid for Afghanistan, because whoever rules Afghanistan is going to require international aid. But this leverage is limited. We shouldn't exaggerate it. Um, 
And it might not be enough to influence the Taliban's behavior, but it's worth pursuing regardless. Afghanistan is one country in a massive region, um, and it should it should be viewed in the context of South and Central Asia. And there's many other concerns in that region. Uh, you have two nuclear powers. You have climate change issues. Um, there, there. <laughs> so I, I think Afghanistan needs to be placed. Um, within the list of all of those priorities and that the United States should continue to financially support the Afghan security forces, but that that aid should be conditioned on reducing corruption levels and ensuring that the Afghan security forces themselves uphold human rights. Um, So I don't think the United States should disengage from Afghanistan, but we have to recognize there will be limitations. And from the CT perspective, CT counterterrorism. From a counterterrorism perspective, it will be on uh, the intelligence community and the Pentagon to figure out a, a policy that can manage risks that isn't um, contingent on continuous deployments to the country. Um, and I think what President Biden did in his announcement was he, he didn't say that the risks have been eliminated. Al Qaeda has been degraded. It hasn't been defeated. Um, ISIS, um, the Islamic State uh, for the Khorasan province um, exists in Afghanistan. Threats still exist. But do in a post-COVID world where we have seen all of these other threats, um, including uh, pandemics and climate change and natural disasters, does it make sense to have this myopic focus on counterterrorism especially if it's attached to a continuous deployment of U.S. troops in Afghanistan. And I think the Biden administration's answer to that is no, it doesn't make sense. Uh, well, Adam, thank you so much for your time and your analysis. It's, you know, it's sobering. Yeah, that's true. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Adam Weinstein for his analysis. And as I said at the outset, I will continue to cover the situation in Afghanistan. I'll certainly bring on Afghan voices. That's something the show does consistently is speak to people in the region about the issues affecting them. So expect that in the future as the situation evolves and again you know thank you for all your support over the years as i mentioned this is the eighth anniversary of this podcast and i owe it all to you the the listener so thank you all right we'll see you next time bye